Welcome to the Shortwave Report. I'm your host and producer, Dan Roberts. The Shortwave Report is a 30-minute review of news and opinion heard on the shortwave radio and the internet in Northern California. Listening to international broadcast at home is quite easy. You just need a shortwave radio with a schedule of English language broadcast. Or it's simpler to use a computer or smartphone with an internet connection. To help you with this, I'll announce times, frequencies, and website addresses at the conclusion of each series of stories. At the website for this show, that's outfarpress.com. You can listen to the past five shortwave reports, find advice for listening to shortwave at home, and find internet links for global news sources. Please check it out and tell a friend. In today's edition, you'll hear reports from France 24, Radio Havana, Cuba, Germany's Radio Deutsche Welle, and NHK Japan. First, a program called Perspective, which is an interview with Michael Sheldrick, a co-founder of Global Citizen, which is an NGO that raises money to fight poverty, climate change, and inequality. The French government has outlawed an activist climate group called the Uprisings of the Earth. France 24. Now it's time for perspective on the programme. And how many times have you sat at home, perhaps even watching this programme, and thought, that's terrible, but there's not really much that I could ever do about it? Well, my guest today is one of those who's tried and succeeded to do something about it. He's the co-founder and chief policy impact and government affairs officer at Global Citizen. That's a group that's raised over $40 billion to fight poverty and other issues as well, such as climate change and inequality. Well, Michael Sheldrick joins us. Global Citizen, we were really founded on the premise that if you take issues like extreme poverty and climate change, these are inherently structural issues, right? Um, some estimates suggest to end extreme poverty, you need something like an additional $350 billion a year, which to viewers at home, that sounds like a lot of money. But when we put it in perspective, the US government two years ago approved uh, $800 billion for its military, right? Just to put it in perspective. And so this really comes down to issues of priority and how we put it on the agenda of political leaders. And so Global Citizen was developed as a platform for ordinary citizens to raise their voice, take action, and recognizing that no amount of charity gala night dinners, as, as important as they are, is going to be enough to raise issues. And as you pointed out, through the tremendous work of our partners, we've seen over $40 billion committed and delivered over the last decade which has helped impact the lives of some 1 billion people. But I do want to say impact doesn't happen in a vacuum, and we're proud that we've worked with some phenomenal NGOs, including here in France and across Europe. Our current campaign, Power Planet, is backed by 75 NGOs around the world. So it is always in partnership and, of course, coming back to the role of citizens, because we know without citizen-led um, accountability, there is no road to delivery. You also encourage people, don't you, to, to think of themselves not necessarily as a Frenchman or a yeah. Brazilian or an American, but to think of them as global citizens and therefore they can act for the planet rather than for individual states? Yeah, that's right. I mean, in this day and age, we saw through the pandemic, but increasingly we see with climate change, right? Whether it's our actions here in France or actions on the other side of the world, how they all have an impact here. You know, we're here in you know, a lot of statistics about increased migration as a result of climate change. And so for us, it's really about not just showing how these issues like climate change impact all of us, it's also giving concrete solutions. So for example, if you go on the Global Citizen platform right now, 
one of the issues you can take is calling on the World Bank to introduce something called debt clauses, which sounds very jargony, but it's essentially saying for small island nations who did little to contribute to the issue of climate change, if they face an extreme weather event like a hurricane, there should be an automatic suspension in their debt repayments so they can bounce back and recover. And this is something which institutions like the World Bank and even like the European Commission, who over the next few days will see if they step up, you know, we've seen that they need to be responsive to pressure. If they're not hearing it from citizens, how can we expect them to step up? Because as much as we would like those in power to do the right thing, we know that with so many competing priorities, they, needed, they need to be reminded of what's important. If you look at Generation Z, you know, there are statistics out there amongst young people, so a phenomenal, not quite a majority, but something like 47% say that they're disillusioned, right? This sense of apathy and really feeling like the future has nothing in store for them. But you're also seeing this rise of interest in issues like climate change, in issues like extreme poverty and issues like inequality, and also this rise in, in political engagement, right? People are actually aware that they need to be involved. The channel is, is how do you, how do you funnel that? And I've always believed that, you know, people respond to hope, right? People respond, they're more likely to have their head in the sand if they don't think their actions are going to make a difference. And so what we've seen, you know, through, through our campaigns, for instance, we, we've seen in 2021, when we were last here in France, we saw businesses and governments pledge to protect and reforest 157 million trees. Last year, we saw 77 million of those trees delivered upon, right? In large part to the great work of partners, NGOs ar around the world. The challenge is sharing that story to keep people motivated and show them that their voices do have an impact, whether that's through the Global Citizen platform or, or another um, platform. President Macron, to his credit, is organizing this summit. He's calling it a summit for a new global financial pact. You know, he's the only G7 leader to host a, a summit on these major issues. So full credit to him. The question is, is will leaders deliver? And that's why with 76 NGOs and co-chaired by the phenomenal Prime Minister Mia Motley of Barbados, who I think is one of the most inspirational leaders, we put together this campaign, Power Our Planet, Act Today to Save Tomorrow. And we're converging, as you said, um, in front of the Eiffel Tower this week to send a very clear message. Number one, we need governments to deliver on the promises they've already met. Number two, we need them to reform institutions like the World Bank so that they're able to respond to the challenges of poverty and climate change. And three, we just need more resources so that we can step up and help countries around the world in a just and fair transition. Is it really realistic? I mean, it's so ingrained, isn't yeah. it, the systems that we have, trying to change them and that gear change is almost impossible, isn't it? Well, I think, you know, Nelson Mandela said famously, it's always impossible until it's done. And then it seems like it was inevitable. And we've seen how quickly, you know, we saw in response to the war in Ukraine, how quickly the West, you know, resolved. In extraordinary times, countries can come together. We saw this during the pandemic, where the West injected trillions of dollars in economic stimulus. So it's not a question that we can't do it. It's a question of, of will. And we've shown that we can do it. That same resolve we've shown with the war in Ukraine and this united um, response, now we need to step up and show that on the issues of climate justice. And it can be done, but it won't be done unless we use our voice. Lots of optimism. Thanks very much for coming in and telling us about it, telling us about the concert as well. Michael Sheldrick uh, joining us from Global Citizen. Thanks very Thanks much. Thanks for having me.
Meanwhile, the French government is to shut down an activist climate group over a series of recent demonstrations, including one that led to fierce clashes with police over a controversial irrigation project. The Uprisings of the Earth, or SLT coalition, is accused of encouraging violence at protests in March against an irrigation reservoir near saint soline in western France. The government says it's not being dissolved because of its ideas, but because of violence and a risk to public safety. SLT denounces what it calls a very political and extremely worrying dissolution. And we can hear now from the French government spokesperson Olivier Véran speaking just a short time ago. It isn't freedom of speech or the right to protest that's being called into question. It isn't about punishing ideas. It's about the constant resort to violence against people and property that we've seen several times in the past few weeks. It's good to defend one's ideas, raise awareness and mobilize to change the law. But it must be done within the law, not by degrading things and stirring up violence. Resorting to violence isn't legitimate in a country governed by laws, and that's why it's sanctioned. Those reports were from France 24. France 24 may be easily found at their website france24.com as well as a YouTube channel called France 24 English and most major podcast sites. Next, Radio Havana, Cuba. Amnesty International has found that the Peruvian government has been using lethal violence against poor and indigenous protesters. There have been numerous events of deadly violence in Palestine and Israel, while Israel accelerates expanding settlements in the West Bank. Radio Havana, Cuba. A report by the rights group Amnesty International has found that the Peruvian government was likely to use lethal violence in marginalized areas of the country as part of its crackdown on recent anti-government protests. The report, entitled Lethal Racism, alleges the government's actions may constitute extrajudicial executions in some cases. Amnesty International calls for the Peruvian Attorney General's office to investigate the use of excessive force. Agnes Kayama, Amnesty's Secretary General, said in a press release, Using lethal firearms against protesters shows a blatant disregard for human life. Despite the government's efforts to paint them as terrorists or criminals, those killed were demonstrators, observers and bystanders. Almost all of them were from poor indigenous and campesino backgrounds, suggesting a racial and socio-economic bias. The report is the latest to find this during the protests that enveloped the country following the ouster of former President Pedro Castillo. The crisis began on December the 7th when Castillo faced his third impeachment hearing. Rather than face an opposition-led Congress, Castillo attempted to dissolve Peru's legislature and rule by decree, a move widely considered illegal. He was quickly impeached, removed from office and arrested. Meanwhile, his former vice president, Dina Boluarte, was sworn in as Peru's first female president.
Castillo's supporters, many of them from poor and rural areas seen as neglected by the state, took to the streets to protest his detention. Amongst their demands were calls for a new constitution and elections. Boluarte's administration has since been criticized for its heavy-handed response to protests and failure to address popular discontent. The Amnesty report found that between December and February, 49 protesters were killed. The government's response has also heightened tensions between Peru and other countries in the region, especially those with left-leaning leaders who were friendly with Castillo. Six Palestinians were killed and another 90 injured during a massive Israeli raid in the Jenin refugee camp in the occupied West Bank on Monday. The dead included a 15-year-old Palestinian boy. At least one Palestinian journalist was shot and injured. During the raid, which was met by fierce resistance, Israel deployed U.S.-made Apache helicopter gunships for the first time inside the West Bank in nearly 20 years. The raid came a day after Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu's government agreed to accelerate the process of approving new settlements in the West Bank, despite criticism from the United Nations, European Union and the United States. Four Israeli settlers have been killed and as many wounded in a retaliatory attack by Palestinians near the occupied West Bank city of Ramallah a day after six Palestinians were killed during a violent Israeli raid in Jenin. Israeli media reported the casualties on Tuesday afternoon and said that the shooting attack was carried out by two Palestinians in a gas station near the Israeli settlement of Eli, located between the West Bank cities of Nablus and Ramallah. Israeli newspaper Jerusalem Post said the two Palestinians opened fire on a restaurant at the gas station on Highway 60 near Eli, leaving four Israeli settlers dead and four others wounded. The newspaper added that one of the Palestinians was shot and killed during an exchange of fire at the scene of the retaliatory attack. The Palestinian was identified as Manhanad Shedade, a member of the Al-Qassam Brigades, the military wing of the Palestinian resistance movement Hamas. Hours later, Israeli forces killed the second Palestinian involved in the West Bank retaliatory attack. He was identified as Kale Saba. Hamas spokesman Hazem Qasem said, quote, the attack was a response to crimes in the Jenin camp yesterday and the storming of the Al-Aqsa Mosque. Palestinian Islamic Jihad spokesman Tariq Selmi said, quote, the retaliatory attack was a natural response to the escalating occupation crimes against the Palestinian people. Threats don't frighten the Palestinian people. Palestine's Shihab News Agency confirmed the retaliatory attack near Ramallah and reported that Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has called for an emergency meeting to discuss the details of the Palestinian operation. The news agency added that the Israeli military declared a closed military zone in the Eli settlement for fear of further operations by the Palestinians. Tensions have been running high in the occupied West Bank over the past year, with the Israeli military conducting violent raids under the pretext of detaining what it calls wanted Palestinians. As a result of these attacks so far this year, at least 160 Palestinians, including 28 children, have lost their lives, and numerous others have been arrested. Those reports were from Radio Havana, Cuba. Cuba's website is working well at radio8c.cu. There's no podcast up there, however. On shortwave, Cuba may be heard from noon to 1 p.m. at 15140, and from 6 p.m. to midnight at either 606060 or 6165. At their website, you can stream the English version at noon, Monday through Friday, Pacific Daylight Saving Time. On to Germany's Radio Deutsche Welle. Following the murder of four Israeli settlers by Palestinians, 
Hundreds of Israeli settlers stormed Palestinian properties, setting fire to buildings and vehicles. African leaders took their peace proposals to Putin and Zelensky, with only the Russians listening to them. Germany's Radio Deutsche Welle. Hundreds of Israeli settlers have stormed Palestinian properties in the occupied West Bank, according to Palestinian authorities, killing one man. The Israeli army confirmed the violence, saying that hundreds of Israelis set fire to dozens of vehicles and buildings in the region. The riots come a day after an attack on Israelis in the area, in which Palestinian attackers reportedly killed four Israeli settlers. Now, violence between the two sides has escalated dramatically in recent days, leaving at least 14 people dead. No signs that tensions in the West Bank will ease anytime soon. Witnesses say Israeli vigilantes rioted in Palestinian villages, torching cars and buildings and firing live bullets. One Palestinian was reportedly killed. Dozens of settlers came here. They tried to enter the courtyard and they set cars on fire. They started shooting towards the house using live bullets and stones and they broke the balconies. It appeared to be retaliation for the shooting of four Israeli civilians by Palestinian gunmen on Tuesday near the Israeli settlement of Eli. Hundreds attended the funeral of a 17-year-old who died in that attack. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has responded to recent Palestinian attacks with promises of retribution, but he struck a different tone when addressing the Israeli attacks in Palestinian villages. There are days when you have to say the obvious. The state of Israel is a state of law. The citizens of Israel are all obligated to respect the law. We will not accept riots either in the Golan Heights or in the West Bank. At the same time, Netanyahu announced that the government would respond to the attack in Eli by accelerating the building of new houses on occupied territory there. Violence in the West Bank has escalated in recent months as Israel's government has pushed to expand settlements. The United States and the United Nations have recently condemned the building of thousands of new Israeli homes on occupied territory. The Secretary General reiterates that settlements are a flagrant violation of international law. They're a major obstacle to the realization of a viable two-state solution and a just, lasting and comprehensive peace. As the violence escalates, those ideals of peace are looking increasingly remote. Well, South Africa's President Cyril Ramaphosa has told Russia's Vladimir Putin that the war in Ukraine must end. Ramaphosa is part of a delegation of African leaders pushing for peace, who met with the Russian president in St. Petersburg. They held talks in Russia after first traveling to Ukraine on Friday. A warm welcome from President Putin as he greets the African peace delegation. During their meeting, he agreed to consider any proposal for dialogue. But the Russian president criticized Ukrainian leaders for rejecting peace talks. It's not us, but the leadership of Ukraine has announced that they will not conduct any negotiations. Moreover, the current president of Ukraine signed a corresponding decree prohibiting these negotiations. Therefore, I understand your concern, I share it, and of course, we are ready to consider any of your proposals. But we do not refuse negotiations. The Ukrainian side refused them. They even issued a decree. Well, what do they want from us? 
The high-level delegation from seven countries was led by South African President Cyril Ramaphosa, who told Putin the war must end because the conflict has weighed heavily on African economies and people. A day earlier in Kyiv, the African leaders called for de-escalation on both sides. But Ukrainian President Zelensky ruled out that possibility, as long as Russian soldiers remain on Ukrainian territory. Those reports were from Germany's Radio Deutsche Welle, which may be heard at a combined audio-video website, DW.com, as well as on YouTube at their channels called DW News and DW Documentary. Also available at most podcast sites. If you have questions or comments about the shortwave report or could assist me by supporting this listener-funded program, I may be reached through the website and PayPal or by writing to Dan Roberts at P.O. Box 1162, Willits, California, 95490. Please help me continue producing this weekly show, which I freely distribute to radio stations and the Internet, like a longtime listener and supporter in Albion, California, did this week. Many, many thanks. We will conclude with NHK World Radio Japan. The U.S. Secretary of State Blinken made a two-day visit to China, failed to restart military communication, which could prevent unintended clashes. The Wall Street Journal reported that China is in talks to build a military training facility in Cuba. China and Cuba both deny this. China condemned Biden's remarks, calling President Xi a dictator, saying that the comment was a provocation. South Korean imports of Japanese fish continue to drop over public concern over the imminent releases of radioactive wastewater from the Fukushima nuclear reactor into the Pacific Ocean. NHK Japan U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken has wrapped up his two-day visit to China. He and the country's top leaders confirmed that they will continue dialogue, but failed to come to an agreement on restarting military communications. Blinken was the first member of President Joe Biden's cabinet to visit China. He met with Foreign Minister Qin Gang, top diplomat Wang Yi, and President Xi Jinping. Interactions between countries should always be respected and carried out in good faith. She said Beijing hopes for a sound and steady relationship between the countries while believing they can overcome difficulties and find a way to get along. Blinken mentioned the country's obligations, despite the many issues on which they disagree. It's the responsibility of both countries to find a path forward, and it's in both our interests and the interests of the world that we do so. Both sides pledged to continue dialogue and agreed to arrange a visit by Foreign Minister Chin to Washington. The U.S. considers military-to-military communication channels crucial to avoiding unintended clashes, but Blinken said China didn't agree on a plan to reopen them. We begin in the U.S., where officials say they have deep concerns about China's influence in the Caribbean. That's after the Wall Street Journal reported Beijing is in talks to build a joint military training facility in Cuba. 
The report comes a week after Washington accused Beijing of stepping up its intelligence presence in Cuba. The latest findings suggest Chinese troops could soon be stationed just 100 miles off the coast of Florida. A Pentagon spokesperson avoided directly commenting on the report when asked by reporters on Tuesday. What we do know and what we have seen is the PRC continuing to make or to continuing to express interest in uh, the Western Hemisphere. We know that they want to expand their military presence, and so we are going to continue to monitor that. Secretary of State Antony Blinken says he conveyed U.S. concerns over China's activities in Cuba during his recent trip to Beijing. Meanwhile, China's foreign ministry spokesperson denied knowledge of plans to build a facility in Cuba. She says she hopes concerned parties focus more on peaceful and stable development of the region. Beijing has strongly condemned U.S. President Joe Biden for calling Chinese leader Xi Jinping a dictator. It says the comment was extremely absurd and irresponsible. Foreign Ministry spokesperson Mao Ning said on Wednesday that Biden's remark goes against the facts and violates diplomatic norms. The relevant remarks by the U.S. side are extremely absurd, irresponsible, and seriously violate basic facts, diplomatic protocol, and China's political dignity. They're an open political provocation. China is strongly dissatisfied and firmly opposed to this. Biden described Xi as a dictator in a speech at a fundraiser on Tuesday in California. He referred to a Chinese balloon that was shot down over the U.S. in February. Biden said the reason Xi Jinping was so upset by the shootdown was that he didn't know it was there. He added, that's a great embarrassment for dictators when they didn't know what happened. The remark came after Secretary of State Antony Blinken wrapped up his visit to China for talks with Chinese leaders on Monday. Blinken met with Xi, top diplomat Wang Yi, and Foreign Minister Qing Gong. The two sides confirmed they would continue their dialogue. South Korean imports of Japanese seafood dropped for the second straight month in May. Media in Seoul attribute the decline to public concerns over the Fukushima water release project. The Korea Customs Service said fishery products imported from Japan in May were down 30 percent year-on-year to 2,100 tons. This follows a decline of 26 percent in April. Japan plans to release the treated water this summer after diluting it to reduce the tritium levels to one-seventh of the World Health Organization's safety standards for drinking water. Some supermarkets in Seoul have been out of sea salt for the past week. Sales clerks say this may be due to customers stocking up on salt before the release of treated water starts to prepare for the annual kimchi-making season. South Korea banned all seafood imports from eight Japanese prefectures near Fukushima in 2013 amid concerns over their radiation levels following the Fukushima accident. Last month, South Korean experts visited Japan to learn about the water discharge project. South Korea's government has been holding daily news conferences since last Thursday to give updates on the plan as part of steps to ease public concerns.
Those reports were from NHK World Radio Japan. They are now heard from 9.30 to 10 p.m. at 9.865 or on the web at www.3.nhk.or.jp. They also podcast at most sites. All the times I announce are for Pacific Daylight Saving Time, so please adjust them to your time zone. One of my goals in producing the show is to encourage people to listen to international broadcast, get a global perspective. You do have to look harder these days because of U.S. and EU prohibitions on media. Every Thursday evening, I post a new shortwave report at the website for this show that's out farpress.com. At my website, you can also listen to past shows. Please consider making a safe donation online through PayPal. There's a link at my website along with the podcast link and get advice for listening at home. This shortwave report, which is now in its 27th year of production, remains free to rebroadcast upon notification. For 27 years, the shortwave report has been produced and distributed off the electrical grid in Northern California using solar panels. While I am recuperating from spinal surgery, I am staying in a house that is connected to the grid. I'm your host and producer, Dan Roberts. Thanks for listening.